it will be a race between different interests to get there first, for sure. And I think our strength is then to be a fast reaction to it, to have someone close at hand. But also it's a very sensitive issue because, as you mentioned, it could be radioactivity. It could be also what I consider a very... You know, if there's something crashing and there are beings from another planet, for example, you have to be respectful. Right? It's not like a fun party going out there and just picking up pieces. It's maybe the first contact between these beings and us here on Earth. So it's quite a big thing to go on. Welcome back. I'm here with Thomas Bovinder. He is the, one of the co-founders of ECRI, the European Crash Retrieval Initiative. How you doing, Thomas? I'm doing great. So glad to be here with you and talking about one of the most exciting things I know. So thank you. Yeah, welcome. Now, I think, I believe, I mean, depending on timing when this comes out, this is the second interview that ECRI is conducting. And it's a relatively new, maybe a um, month-old organization. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So we have quite a few requests, and it's really, really good because right now we want to just spread the word and reach out to as m many people as possible. So uh, thanks a lot for inviting me. Yeah, always a pleasure. So what's ECRI's mission? Okay, so... Disclosure, basically, and we want to hand back information and data to the people, and we believe that it's through the people, the power of the people, that this can be done. And of course, there are like powerful organizations and you know institutes that are already doing this and have been doing this for so many years. But right now, we want to have this people initiative and create a network that will actually yeah help disclosure and we do believe that disclosure has been going on like in brazil in the us right now it's like going up and down we don't really know and with the schumer amendment being a bit torn to pieces we felt like maybe we can do something here in scandinavia and keep a snowball rolling and adding momentum down over europe how many people right now is ECRI and how do you expect it to grow over time? What are your kind of plans to get folks more involved? And how can people get more involved, actually? Hmm. Yeah, so we are around 20 people in our main group. And these people come from so many different parts of lives and the competences. It's very, very awesome i think we have like uh, the old woman working with social work her whole life and we have the criminal investigator working with terrorist attacks we also have the scientific people the great minds working with setai uh, you know search for extraterrestrial intelligence that we have beatrice villaruel for example mm -hmm. anders varel from uh, lunds university and a lot of other people, like Avi Loeb, is uh, backing us up. 
and ready to you know have a look at what we can find so this network is growing for sure we also have two british guys working with the psychology behind disclosure and what's happening with experiencers as they experience perhaps abductions and very very serious things so having the expertise from psychologists also to look into cases and reports to actually val- validate if it's a serious one or not is uh, yeah also very good when the united states and china clash the world will never be the same especially when forces beyond reality threaten to intervene what if the united states went to war with the people's republic of china How would these rivals fight for supremacy on land, sea, air, and across the stochastic streams of time? What wonder weapons would be unleashed? What horrors would emerge from the irradiated sludge of the South China Sea? What heroes would rise and forever change the course of history? Tread into the deepest and darkest dimensions of the multiverse, gaze through a kaleidoscope of fractured realities, and bear witness to the disturbing visions of World War III from today's greatest minds in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Weird World War, China. Available now from Bain Books at Bain.com. And to kind of distinguish between a serious case and someone who may have a mental health challenge or maybe a hoaxer, it sounds like the private investigator and the psychologist are kind of the team that validates that. Yeah, for sure. But we also have, you know, the good old common sense, the gut feeling. And if you have a flat organization and it's like everyone is equal and welcome to speak, and no no one's voice is more important than the others, then it's it's a very good database or like a a well of knowledge. And I think in that discussion, we do get the best knowledge of what cases to go on and which ones are actually perhaps just fakes. But mainly, we have had perhaps one case that we believe is a bit phony, perhaps someone with a a mental disorder, perhaps. So in general, I'd say most people reporting are very serious and they want to to give us information that we can actually look into and, you know, solve things that they have been experiencing themselves or just like trying to connect us with the right people, the witnesses of incidents. Yeah. Now, you're also a member of UAP Sweden, correct? Yeah, yeah. We started one year ago, so things have just rolled on very, very quickly. But there's a big high demand in Sweden to have a community that's open-minded, um, speaking about the phenomena, and then we're not just talking about the nuts and bolts, but you know the spiritual aspects of it, and also, yeah, the different consciousness connections. So, first out, the group was just called the, the connection group, just to connect each other, and also to connect the dots and add the, the pieces to the puzzle. And that's a very exciting group of people. And from there, we get a lot of inspiration. But uh, when it comes to the ECRI initiative, that's more like the hands-on, nuts and bolts, scientific process of investigating. And yeah, then just 
trying to spread out the data to the people and to get further and make this world a better place in terms of development, because we have kind of got stuck a bit as I feel it right now. Yeah, I agree with you. And in the United States, it felt like we had a bunch of momentum and then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it was like the empire struck back. Right. So within the span of a week, you had MUFON, which is the mutual UFO network in the United States. They have a huge proprietary database of cases stretching all the way back. They were rumors. I haven't been able to substantiate them yet. And I'm just going to put it out there and people can investigate on their own that the organization was hacked by something emanating from an IP address in the Eastern United States. Right. So go figure. And at the same time, you had Kirkpatrick on mainstream media, right? The debunkers always get access to the mainstream, just completely denying that there's any connection with UFOs. It's kind of all hogwash, this and that. And people that I know talk to them, like Robert Salas, who were missile launch officers. The government felt he was sane enough to monitor 10 Minutemen 1 missiles that were pointed at the Soviet Union, right? So when there was a sighting over his missile launch facility, right, he's not making that up. (laughs) The guy had a top secret security clearance and whatnot. But that's the implication of what Kirkpatrick was doing. As you mentioned earlier about taking the teeth out of the UAP Disclosure Act, again, same thing. And it was mainly opposed by one U.S. representative from Alabama, and I believe is Huntsville, right, which is where much of the U.S. rocket industry is. And the other was from Mike Turner, who is the congressman from the highest 10th district, which is where Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is. Right, which is yeah. allegedly the location of some of these crafts. So go figure. I wonder what happened there. Mm-hmm. So it feels that way. And I think the approach that your group is taking is critical because I don't think the government's ever going to disclose this stuff. I think we're going to go the path of catastrophic disclosure. And I think trust around the world in government, things like that, is not very high right now. I think it's incumbent upon individuals to figure this out, to decentralize the process so that there's no one node where information can be attacked, a la what you saw with MUFON. Mm. And if this probing results in an event, whatever that event may be, so be it. We can't live in the dark as a species and not understand that there are things out there that our sensors, right, or senses, right, can't detect, right? We can only see in a very narrow range of the visual spectrum. We can only hear in a very narrow range, 20 to 20 kilohertz. So I think it's incumbent upon humanity to figure this out. And the people in power probably aren't going to allow it. So we need to kind of figure it out on our own, whatever that brings. So I appreciate that you're doing this work. I think UAP Sweden's been around for a year. ECRI has been around for a month. Have you received any reports thus far? Like how many cases? Or I would be surprised if you've received one as of because it's been a month. Yeah. So 
Yeah, exactly. We thought maybe we have to wait two years, maybe five. But yeah, we did actually get uh, a couple of cases just like the first uh, two days. And one of those cases, as I mentioned, wasn't really the, the one that we believed in. But now we have actually, we are following up maybe five different cases with different allocated teams or like so basically you're, you're getting a case every six days that's amazing yeah but also we are hunting the cases so to speak and we have so many nice people with great knowledge from way back so we are actually backtracking cold mm-hmm. cases you could call them so we have some of the cold cases that we are right now investigating and i cannot tell you too much about it because we do want to be first on the ball and also we are doing this right now just to open up and letting everyone know that our vision and our goal is to be like a totally non-profit we are just the common people gathering information but using the competence from scientists top of the world good bright brains and then just bringing it all out and we totally believe that what we find we will divide up and try to be investigated and collecting data from it from as many institutes as possible many serious in- institutes as possible that we can trust and i think in doing that it will be like peer reviewed as every good science science must be and that's the way to actually go forward when it comes to nuts and bolts things i think yeah to advertise on through glass darkly email through glass darkly ads at gmail.com now let's kind of take two examples all right so you have the hot case and a cold case and these are hypothetical examples as a former military officer, I 100% understand why you don't want to discuss current cases. And I'm not going to ask questions about that because I understand it within my phones. Okay. So let's just take a hypothetical cold case. What would your process be? So the cold case comes in, whatever it is, how do you tackle that problem? Like, How does the investigation start? Well, how does it come in? How does the investigation start? And you know, do you have like a checklist of things that you go through in order to investigate it? Hmm. Yeah, so <clears throat> we are actually working out that as we go right now, we believe in less thinking, more doing. And then as we have a rapid prototype, we can learn from that. So what we've done so far with one of the cold cases is to, first of all, bring in the witness or the expert, mm-hmm. so to speak, and then gather a lot of information and share it in our group and then thinking about the what you said like the historical aspects and the historical ways of previous investigations perhaps but then also considering what's new what technology do we have today what resources can we find and use with donators or people wanted to join the the project so that's also one part of it to contact well connections that we have and asking them 
would this be an interesting case? And this is one of the things we want to do. And that's like budget-wise this much. The cost is this. Fundraising. Fundraising, right? Yeah, it's, right. It's, and it's well, like pinpointed well, While I have you on, if somebody wants to donate money to the cause, how can they do that? Just really quick. So for well, the audience we, we don't want any you know, general money because we want to have a specific reason for the money. Because if we do get, you know, okay, here you have some money and then this person or organization is actually not controlling us, but they could influence you, right? Influence us. Exactly. That's thank you. So we are actually being very careful of just asking for money and help when we have a case that this is something we want to do. And uh, we are not handling any money. Okay. We're just pro bono. So the, the finances and the costs is all from our own pockets, basically, but also specifically tied to the things we need for that particular project. So, yeah. So if there are someone out there who believes in this project, we are very thankful if they, they just give us an, an email and then we can come back to them if we think that it's a good idea. Because which, it's all, what's the email all, address that they should reach out to? Maybe we can add it on. It's a bit complicated, but they can email me, which is Initiative at gmail.com. And I'll put it and down in the links. Yeah, yeah. Check it out in on the webpage. And there we have basically the, the information you need. And the, that's the only way of contacting us for the moment. But we do uh, try to be open and uh, public like this on podcasts. And we have also documentary filmers and are right now looking into some cooperations with uh, celebrity people in Sweden to just let people know that we are out here and want to do this. Okay, so this is kind of the old case. You kind of collect materials from prior investigations. You talk or speak with eyewitnesses to the account. So you were kind of, in the United States, you probably use an affidavit to have it be sworn testimony as an example. And then what about the scientific side? Do you ever go back to sites and investigate time anomalies, radioactive signatures, electromagnetic signatures, things like that? Is that something you also investigate in cold cases specifically? Yeah, exactly. That's a really great point because I think previous investigations may have been basically digging the dirt and perhaps radioactivity, you know, with the Geiger meter or something. But I think we have much more things to go on. And it could be, for example, anomalies in the biology, like in the plants and the microbiology as well. I'm not sure about that, but we have experts, of course, in, in the different universities that are available to ask. So soil samples is, I think, an interesting thing to add. Also, as you say, you know, the witnesses accounts from that time, I think it's very important to look into if they are, are saying the same things mm -hmm. when it comes to many years later. Consistency, right. Yeah, consistency. But then there is also a question of owning the land and what you can do. So one case, we approached the landowners and the situation was 
it was a very sensitive time because the father who had been present at the time of the incident was very ill and very old so that led us to actually halt the the whole process and still right now we are not continuing this specific case so in sweden you have the the public right and access to nature so you can basically go anywhere you want you're free to roam and make a campfire and so on but when it comes to a crash site we have a a specific organization in sweden that allows you to go there and rescue a life you know if there's something going on a burning plane for example the life has to be saved first but then if you have a sealed off area then you're not allowed anymore of course so it's a question of having access and the goodwill of the landowners that's important we have realized this in that in europe it's a bit difficult or like it's not as easy as in sweden just to walk out there and have a look and taking photos and filming and go out online with it so yeah so speaking about cold cases it's something that we are doing right now and we are just in the analysis process of several cold cases and we are speaking a lot in between each other considering if it's a good case to go on or not as as you said we've just been doing this for a month So it's just the last week that we are actually spreading out our efforts a bit and following dif- different leads or different cases at the same time. Now, hot cases. And I'm going to be very specific, but I'm going to give you a specific example. It's not a real example. It's just specific. Nice. So, so the first question is, let's say it's kind of a live crash. So something lands somewhere in Sweden and the first of all how would you detect it before it lands do you have that capability mm. I think as we talked about earlier media is one way of knowing about it but in the main media the big media we won't see that much but it's in the small papers the local papers and to have the network with different groups of people saying hey this happened in the local newspaper have a look and then it's really good to actually have someone in that town or village just to go and knock the door not you know using the phones or any electronics but you know manually speaking looking showing pictures make sure they're not carrying out the map yeah exactly so we are a bit careful not to say too much and we do realize that if it's a hot case it will be a race between different interests to get there first for sure and i think our strength is then to be a fast reaction to it to have someone close at hand but also it's a very sensitive issue because as you mentioned it could be radioactivity it could be also what i consider a very You know if there's something crashing and there are beings from another planet for example you have to be respectful right it's not like a fun party going out there and just picking up pieces it's maybe the first contact between these beings and us here on earth so it's quite a big 
thing to go on and to have many people it's like the missing people organization do you have this in the us too yeah yeah absolutely yeah. just to realize the seriousness of it and to help each other and cover a big area at the same time to look for things and it could be something very small i personally experienced uh, close at hand orbs me and my daughter saw four orbs and this was actually the starting point for all this uap engagement from my case from my side so i mean they could be quite small now i don't know if they were like one and a half meter or if they were like this big but if something crashes it could be i think a silent crash or it could be a big crater creating a lake or anything so a hot case i think is the holy grail and then we need to react instantly we cannot think too much we must have the protocols ready in terms of safety documentation and also to collect material and to keep that material safe and to to spread yeah. it out as quick as possible now it says you were working with avi lobe or you had contact with avi lobe's organization and i know that his organization is working on these passive radar systems that would allow you to detect these UAPs. Now, the problem with that is when you start installing those systems throughout a geographic region, it becomes an issue for the military because not only can you detect the location of anything that's non-terrestrial or interdimensional, who knows, right, where it comes from, but non-human, let's call it, non-human intelligence. But you also, if a foreign intelligence agency were to tap into that network, they would also be able to map the routines and patterns of U.S. military or whatever local military there is. So that's one issue that you have to contend with. The second issue is the military has access to all these tools to radar and things like that so they're going to know first in most cases in, in fact probably the majority of cases that something came down how do you want that advantage hmm. well it's a very tricky thing to be faster than the military and in the ideal world it would be so amazing if the military and an organization like us could work together if we had the same goal we'd have received questions from military personnel in other countries in europe to help us out and they are really saying that they love our initiative and so on and if you would trust everyone it would be so nice just to add the knowledge together and and work together but as you say we are not sharing is one way with them yeah i i mean oh probably. i'm just being blunt i know i know how yeah, yeah that's good and the thing is they will be fast of course but also i'm not sure everything will actually be seen on radar and also you have the human factor someone is sitting there watching that radar screen and maybe there is this the th a thing with this stigma is that 
people don't believe in it. And maybe that person, that guy at three o'clock in the night is just like, not, you know, that's just an anomaly. It's, it's a flaw in the system. So we always have that, you know, one in a hundred case that will actually just be there waiting for us. And it just takes one, one case, one fallen UFO, one fallen thing with an NHI entity or whatever. It doesn't have to be an entity. It can just be something that is constructed in an intelligent way that is not us. And if we can find it, it will be interesting. Yeah. Okay. So let's say it's kind of a one in a hundred because in 99 cases, when you start heading to the crash site, you'll hit a cordon. It'll probably be local police, you know, things like that. If you're able to somehow bribe your way or find some other means to get through that cordon, you'll likely hit a second cordon, which would be whatever Sweden's equivalent of the army rangers are. And by the way, they wouldn't have a clue that it was a NHI craft. They would just know that there was a downed craft and they were there to protect and then if you get any further, then you would likely be dealing with the equivalent of U.S. Delta or British SAS, whatever Sweden's equivalent. Or you might, you know, now that Sweden is part of NATO, you'd have to contend with that yes. whole that whole machinery. And it will close even more. I think I get the sense that the Swedish military is probably a little bit more open about these things. The U.S. military will not be. And so that's in 99 out of 100 cases, you likely have to contend with some of that. In the 100th case, or the one out of 100, let's say you're able to get to the site, and let's say that there's something there. What are your protocols for, A, initiating contact, but also, B, protecting yourself from, and again, there's a dark side of all this stuff that people never talk about which are the human mutilation cases, things like that. I think there's some cases that have been seen in the UK. I think there might be one that I'm aware of in the United States. And there's a lot in South America. There are a lot of cases of these things. So to repeat the question, what's the protocol for engaging in non-human intelligence in a positive way? And then B, what's the protocol for making sure that you're also protected. Mm. Yeah, that's one of the most important questions to uh, so that none, none, none of us is harmed in any way. And I think when you are really passionate about this topic, you, you may just go there and you take your risk because it's so important. Well, even radiation, like you mentioned, it might not even yeah. be hostile, right? Exactly. So that's... One thing that we do have, like a Geiger counter. counter. Yeah, yeah. So that's one thing I'd say. And we know that from experience earlier that you do have witnesses getting serious damages from that. But I also think about this. So if you have a crashed site, it could also be heat. And you, know, you never know if there's an entity there as well. And that could be a lie, of course. And then it's a question of actually having some kind of 
being an ambassador, <laughs> I guess, mm -hmm. from this planet. And also, do we have a right to actually take something that is capable of, for example, fixing itself and going out again? You know, there are many philosophical questions. Is it ours to take? I'd say maybe not. The so US there are so many questions. Is nine tenths of the law. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think if we manage to get through all the stops and the sealed off areas, which is perhaps hard, but if we do that, I think one of the most important thing is to document. That's why we have professional filmers in our teams to also go online with it because that's also a protection for for the people on site and you mean like live streaming like as yeah, it's happening yeah. live yeah yeah because yeah. I, I, that was my next question we'll, we'll continue and then i'll ask my next question yeah and and of course that material can be disputed as you know fake and whatever we see these films from brazil and we see them from many parts but if you can combine that with actually taking a sample and it could be in a vehicle you can pick it up if it's safe to do that and you want to take the risk you can pick it up and then you can drive away with it of course and i think many people would actually do that because they believe in this vision to spread it and then we have the film material and then we have actually the physical samples that we can go to the stockholm university or the lund university or to avilope or 10 other institutes to look at once we find it. One protocol I would recommend, and I literally just came up with this. Typically, when you have an event like this, and because the qu next question is, what if the military shows up and demands, which they, I mean, NATO absolutely would, would demand that everybody hand over everything they have, film, materials, etc. What's plan B for that? And I'll tell you what my answer would be after um, just any advice I can give. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, that's a possibility that we collide at the same time. And I think to be on the safe side, of course, we should just cooperate. That's what I have to say here. So what I would recommend is... If you're there slightly earlier, you have a system where while you're live streaming, I think that's a great idea, is you get those materials out of the area as quickly as possible, at least enough of a sample that you have evidence. And the way that I would do that is you have enough people in the organization where you have drop boxes that are not the same anytime they're specific for a particular event that you don't know who's picking it up you just know that a member of that group it's almost like a cell right would take that and then disseminate it into you know three different locations and then keep the groups very small and tight so that you can get it out and if you're under harsh questioning you literally don't know at least the person on the scene does maybe someone else is designated at random times who's not on the scene who will know but you don't know that either right mm. so you keep some of those information sources walled off so you can get the materials out and under questioning 
you could be a hundred percent honest and cooperative, but you literally don't know who has it at that point. So that will increase the probability you'll you'll get it out. Now, the way the the government would counter it is they would infiltrate your group, right? So as you start to get scale and size, that's going to happen. So just be prepared mm. for it and manage your protocols in a way that enables you to keep these things protected. Yeah. Sean, I tried to be a bit blank here. <laughs> I'm not good at it really, but because I don't want to say too much of yep. what we are planning, but I think what you're saying now, And by the way, what I'm saying, it came from me. We did not have any conversations or anything like that. That's just my advice. And that's so nice to to get that, you know, because it's from putting all the information and experience and so on together, we can actually create these protocols. And as you say, we need to protect our protocols. I mean, of course, not everyone are... Trying to infiltrate us and so on. It, it's it's easy to. No, you're not. You're not big enough. Yet. You're not big enough yet. No, exactly. So, but still, it's really important to think about these things. And as we are just a new organization, we haven't got all the answers yet. But we will act if we get a case that is a hot case. When we do, I won't say that we haven't, but. We, I'm not gonna, I'm not we, push we, for that. we are going to act on it and then use the information we get to maybe see what we can uh, do differently next time. The other recommendation I would have is that you rehearse a live situation. Yeah. Right. You develop a protocol and then you rehearse it so that whatever protocols you develop, you get used to doing it enough that when it actually happens... You'll make fewer mistakes. You always make mistakes, but you make fewer mistakes. So with that, if somebody has a hot case, how do you recommend they contact you? Because as you noted earlier, any electronic communication will be monitored, Mm. right? Probably not actively, but it all goes into one central database, probably on a server in Utah. So how could somebody contact you in a way that protects their identity and is not intercepted. Hmm. We have a report page and that's from the Vasco homepage. And that's the, the research page where Beatrice is doing her research. So that's the place where we will get the initial information and contact. It's quite interesting. You can go there and have a look if you want to. I mean, if you are looking at this, we try to not ask, you know, leading questions. We just try to get the big picture. And then from there, the next step is to actually get more detailed information. And if it's a hot case, we need to, of course, call the person, try to make some kind of quick response. And of course, as you say, people can intercept this we realize it. So it's a question of actually acting real fast. We know that. But we would also like to say that we are not doing this to create chaos or like a a disclosure that will disrupt society. I mean, we all have 
loved ones. We need the system in terms of health and security and police and everything that we need, young and old, school systems and so on. So when we find something and that is proof for extraterrestrial or non-human intelligence, we want this to be... We are not interested in actually finding out the technology. We're not right. like... What, we don't want to right. reverse you just want it. To know it's, you just want to know it's real. You just want to know that we're not alone. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then if we do that... And if the government can, had come out and told us this... We wouldn't have to. Then we stop. We wouldn't have to do this. Right. Yeah. Then we stop right now. Because if we have the proof, we can actually say, okay, so we were at this site. We found this. And our five scientists have done peer-reviewed papers. And this is what it is. It's non-human. And this is what we filmed. And this is our documentation of that. And at the same time, we had this army group there and they've got it so now it's like you have to tell us this is like public knowledge right now and if we come to that scenario i think it will help disclosure and from that my personal aim is that we can get a better understanding of how to work as a planet as a human race and we can maybe solve these problems that we do have in terms of nature, destruction, the energy crisis, and so on. And that's the whole point of it. And I mean, I think many, many people want this. Even the people standing there, you know, like drawing the, the fences around the objects, they are just common people like you and me, really. Yeah. They're incented by avoidance of pain, right? Like if they were to let people in or not do their jobs, they could go to prison for a very long period of time, right? For a national yeah. security violation. So, but you're right, they're people and they're just trying to do their jobs. Yeah. And if there's and actually a way to some do people this, would actually do that, they would actually like David Grush, he threw his career away or did he? I mean, again, this is just my opinion. Like any other organization, there are various factions. And there's nothing that he revealed that was not cleared by the Pentagon. Like, if he had done anything that was illegal, he would be in prison right now. Yeah, so that's true. I think there are elements within the Pentagon that are pro-disclosure, and I think he's part of that effort. And I think there are people in the Pentagon who are anti-disclosure and they're the ones that you're seeing with kind of the kirkpatrick sort of effort so ideally because it sounds like there's 40 people in the united states who've actually touched something and are working on this sort of effort and are in the know there's a reason none of those people have come right out right they're trying to do things the right way they're trying because the other thing too is when you come out with some of this information, it has unforeseen consequences and unforeseen national security ripple effects, right? Because anything they disclose is also disclosed to our adversaries, particularly Russia and China. So a lot of these people are also patriots and they don't want to harm their countries. 
And in some cases, what they have might in some way, again, I don't know what the data is or what they have. So it's not black and white in the sense that people can just come out and disclose because they're probably good people and they don't want to harm the country and they also don't want to go to prison. So in the same vein, though, there's no excuse the government shouldn't say, look, we're not alone. We have scientific proof that we're not alone. And so I imagine whatever it is, is the moment they make that admission in a official capacity, there are questions that they don't want people to ask that will lead down a rabbit hole where they'll find something that they don't want to hear or that could be disturbing. And it could be to what I mentioned earlier about human mutilations, things like that, which would be disturbing, but I think would be helpful to know, or it could be something far worse, right? Which it could be that we are in contact and we've been warned that if we notify the rest of humanity about this, it will be considered a hostile act, right? You know, it could be something that extreme. And I don't know what the answer is because none of us are in the know, right? We're just kind of in the dark about a lot of this stuff. So with that, any final words for the audience about your initiative? And by the way, thank you for doing this. Like, I think it's probably some of the most important work for humanity right now, even though most of humanity doesn't realize that. Hmm. Well, I feel privileged to be part of this. And as you said, you know, those weeks where the Schumer Amendment and the MUFON files were stolen, it felt really hard on me personally. And I, I was very surprised that I was so affected by it. It was like the first time I felt really disheartened and sad. And at the same time, Beatrice Villaruel, she contacted me and we at the same time felt like we had to do something. We need to work for disclosure from our end. We cannot wait for some things to happen right now. And every little person can do something. You could speak to your neighbor. You can just say to your work colleague that, yeah, I've seen something. And I believe that it's not human. I think we are not alone. And if we all just do the things, the small things that we all can do, and that we have the courage to do, then it will be enough. But as long as we live in limitations and in fear and let that rule us, then we won't be free. We won't have disclosure. So I just encourage everyone to be brave and to also believe in the person next to you, not to be thinking that everything is darkness and everything is you know, there to get you and to trick you and manipulate you, but try to attract what you want to see, like be the change you want to see in life, right? Because that's how we create a new reality and ECRI is our way of doing that. And we want to invite everyone because that's not like top of a pyramid. And if one person is removed, I'm just a teacher. I mean, if you remove me, you can come in, Sean, and you take my place. We are standing shoulder by shoulder and you cannot replace the people, right? <laughs> it's that simple. So, yeah, let's go. Let's see what we can find out together. Just to add to your comment, I 
kind of see this time in human history as akin to what happened during the Protestant Reformation. Now, this is not a religious comment that I'm going to make, but there was this is when Martin Luther came out and basically said that the intercession between God and man, priests were not needed for that intercession. You could have a direct connection with God. Okay. In the same vein, what this movement is kind of pushing humanity toward, just in general, is you don't need to have the government consolidate all the information and make decisions. People can be the change that they need to be. And I think that's kind of where we are in humanity's struggle to evolve, to learn, to grow. And the UAP aspect is part of what's pushing us to see that. Each one of us is capable of changing the world. It might be small initially, but there's always a ripple effect. And mm. if you want the world to change, you need to start with yourself to crib exactly what you just said. So thank mm. you, my friend, and you're doing God's work, and I appreciate you. Thanks, man. Pleasure to be on your show. Always a pleasure. Talk soon. If you enjoyed today's video, please hit like and subscribe, and also hit the notification button so you can be notified whenever I post new content. Thank you. Now, if you're enjoying the channel and you want to support it, there are several things you can do. In fact, there are five things you can do. The first thing you can do is just buy my books. I got plenty of books out in the market right now, and I would prefer that folks buy a book rather than giving me direct support because they get something out of it. They have a real tangible product. The second way you can support me is by becoming a member on YouTube or becoming a patron on Patreon. And just go to either site and it'll explain everything. way you can support the channel is by checking out my merch site which is here there's plenty of stuff that you could get to support the channel and i'd appreciate that you you have it and you can wear it not only do you help support the channel but you also help promote the channel and i appreciate that the fourth way that you can support the channel and this is really easy is anytime you want to buy something on amazon literally just go to the description below and click on any link literally any link the channel gets a cut of that, and it costs you no extra money. You just go through the link as I'm part of the Amazon Affiliates Club. The fifth and final way you can support the channel is through donations. Now, I don't prefer these because it's more of an expression of gratitude, but you don't really get anything out of it as a subscriber to the channel. However, if you decide to do these options, there's two options. There's Buy Me a Coffee, which is a separate site, and there's also you can go through YouTube with either a Super Chat, a Super Sticker, or a Super Thanks. Again, I prefer Buy Me a Coffee because that organization takes less money than Amazon does. But either way, I appreciate any support you are willing to give the channel. So thank you very much and keep watching. I really appreciate it.